0: The first reading is from the Reverend Dr. Galen Gingrich. Uh, I slightly adapted it. Uh, uh, Galen is the senior minister now at All Souls uh, Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City. And uh, these are words he said at General Assembly last summer in Salt Lake City. I believe that God exists not in the way that an apple exists, but in the way that beauty exists exists. An apple is a physical object we can touch and hold in our hands. Beauty, on the other hand, never appears to us, but we find the idea of beauty necessary in order to account for our delight in the symmetry and form of certain objects and experiences, sunsets, symphonies. Like beauty, God has to be has to be made manifest through other forms. Is God able in time and history to step in and change things? The answer to that question is no. Where then do consciousness and choice enter the world? The answer is simple. They enter through us. The only way God plays an active role in time is through us. William Blake was right, Was on the right track when he wrote... Everyone of every clime that prays in deep distress prays to the human form divine. For his part, Blake thought the human form divine described Jesus. My view is that you and I are also the human form divine. To say that we are the presence of God in this world is not a metaphor. We are the hands and voice of God. God changes outcomes in this world only as we change them. God is not an independent agent. In other words, God is dependent on us. The active agency of the divine light emerges through our choices and actions. This idea of God is hard to accept partly because it requires us to believe something miraculous not about God, but about ourselves. It requires us to believe that we are the divine in human form. Only we can extend the arms of refuge and sound
1: the voice of hope. There is only us. The second reading is by Naomi Shihab Nye. I feel sorry for Jesus. People won't leave him alone. I know he said wherever you go, to wherever two or more are gathered in his name, but I'll bet some days he regrets it. <laughs> Cozily they tell you what he wants and doesn't want, as if they just got an email. Remember telephone, that pass-along game, where the message changed dramatically by the time it rounded the circle? Well... People blame terrible pieties on Jesus. They try to feel like his special pet. Jesus deserves better. I think he's been exhausted for a long time now. He went into the desert, friends. He didn't go into the golden chandeliers and say, the truth tastes better here. See, I'm talking like I knew. It's dangerous talking for Jesus. You get carried away almost immediately. I stood in the spot where he was born. I closed my eyes where he died and didn't die. And that makes me feel like being silent, you know? A secret pouch of listening. You won't hear me talk about this again.
0: Here are two of my my favorite quotes about God. The first is from a boy named Teddy in a short story by J.D. Salinger. Teddy says, When I was six, I saw that everything was God and my hair stood up and all. It was on a Sunday, I remember. My sister was a tiny child then and she was drinking her milk and all of a sudden I saw that she was God and the milk was God I mean, all she was doing was pouring God into God, if you know what I mean. And I don't know the author of this one. It goes, don't question God too much because God might say, if you're so anxious for answers, come up here. <laughs> our theme of the month in December, our theme of the month, is God. Last Sunday, Justin Schroeder opened this up for us wondrously. I commend to you his words. If you weren't here, you might listen to the podcast or get the text. God. The Reverend Dr. Galen Gingrich reminds us that we can describe beauty only by pointing to particular beautiful things. The slant of the sunlight the sound of the bow drawn across the strings. This, this holiday season I'm making, um, I'm, I'm sometimes at my sewing machine stitching small eye pillows, little sleep masks uh, used for relaxation, and filling them with flaxseed and lavender, uh, dried lavender buds. Every time I open my tin of lavender, the scent is a, a sweet and pungent surprise of beauty, how can you describe the scent of lavender? It's indescribable, but knowable. Just as we can only describe beauty by pointing to beautiful things so we can only talk about God, Galen says, by talking about particular moments of meaning and divine presence, The time the starry heavens spoke to us of our place in the universe. The act of a compassionate person that awakens our compassion. The way the knitters among us make beautiful hats to give to our brothers and sisters who are hatless and worse, homeless. God giving God to God. The truth is the word God is one I tend to avoid. In some ways it's a hard word for me to say, though I love the conversation it leads to. My Quaker inclination is to choose silence instead. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner reminds us that the Hebrew name of God is made of four letters, often mispronounced Yahweh. Actually, he says the word is unutterable, not just because it's holy, but because the letters are all vowels and you can't say all the vowels at the same time without risking respiratory injury. Actually, he says the four letters pronounced together make the sound of breathing. The word God is nothing more or less than the breath of God in you. I'm not very eager to use the word God; it has its difficulties. Even more difficult, perhaps, is the word Jesus. Naomi, she and I feel sorry for Jesus because of how he's been used and what's been made of his legacy. Poor Jesus. Naomi writes, remember telephone, that pass-it-on game where the message changed dramatically by the time it rounded the circle well? People blame terrible pieties on Jesus. Jesus deserves better. I think he's been exhausted for a very long time. I've thought this is a good week to give Jesus a little attention. When, if not now? (laughs) Next Sunday is our Christmas pageant, the rousing and joyful production with angels and animals of all climes and shepherds and all and it all leads up to the arrival of the baby jesus along with the message our message that every child born on this earth is a brand new incarnation of the human form divine it's a powerful message and one i think jesus would buy poor jesus (laughs) i like to start any talk about jesus with a few lines from richard letterer's little collection called a world history sort of it's a history of the human race compiled from actual statements of school-aged children. The Chronicles begin way back in Egypt and Israel and include these facts. Ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies. The people wrote in hydraulics and built pyramids in the shape of a huge triangular cube. Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and he died before he ever reached Canada. <laughs> the Hebrew King David fought the Finkelsteins. And had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Homer wrote the oddity in which Penelope was the last hardship Ulysses endured on his journey. Julius Caesar was murdered by the Ides of March, and as he died, he gasped out the words, Tee-hee, Brutus. In the Renaissance section, we learned that Shakespeare lived at Windsor with his merry wives writing tragedies, comedies, and errors, that Romeo and Juliet are an example of a heroic couplet. And that Sir Francis Drake circumcised the world with a 100-foot clipper. <laughs> it's a tricky thing passing on information about the past. It is like the telephone game. No matter how the story comes to us, we add our own spin. Some time ago, um, a man was saying to me that, as he saw it, Christianity has been an oppressive force in our world. In the course of our conversation, he said, Jesus was a large man and he whipped people with a scourge. I said, Jesus was a big guy who used a whip on people? Did you read this in the Gospels? He said he hadn't read the Gospels. I said, I don't recall any mention of Jesus' size. Well, he said he had to be big to do what he did. We know this. In this interchange, I learned that when this man imagines Jesus, he sees an ego-driven man who started a religion of exclusion. The Jesus he sees is not the Jesus I see. He dislikes his Jesus, I like mine. My Jesus is more like the one in my friend Judith, uh, the one my friend Judith met in her dream. If you will allow me to resurrect this little story that I've told you before. Judith was a professor, she taught New Testament Greek "'and studied the role of women in the Gospel of Luke. "'One night she had a vivid dream "'in which Jesus came into her room "'and sat down by the foot of her bed "'and she said he was an ordinary-looking man. "'He sat very quietly, and Judith thought, "'Here's my chance. "'So she said to him, "'Jesus, I've been wanting to ask you, "'all those miracles and healings you did, "'how did you do that anyway?' In her dream, Jesus shrugged and said, I have no idea. I just went around doing my work and things happened. And later when people wanted to explain it, they made up all kinds of reasons. In the Gospel of Mark, probably the oldest of the Gospels that made it into the Bible, there's a moment when Jesus puts two questions to his disciples. First he asks, Who do people say that I am? And they answer. They say, you are John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophet. And Jesus asks, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? And only one disciple, Peter, makes a guess. When I hear those two questions, I like to imagine them coming from Judas' ordinary Jesus, the one who will stop by your house just to sit a while. If this Jesus came to my place, well, first, if he looked really exhausted, I'd want to offer him a a lazy boy chair, make him a cup of tea, maybe give him a lavender-scented eye mask, (laughs) invite him to kick back. After he sat down and made himself comfortable, if he asked me, who do people say that I am, not because he was worried, but because he was frankly curious, I'd say, Well, Jesus, it depends on who you ask. Unitarian Universalists, my people, tend to think you were a spiritually gifted, spiritually mature human being. In my church, people might say things like, I believe Jesus was the Martin Luther King Jr. of his time, or he was a wise teacher whose teachings got twisted, or I don't give it much thought, I'm a practicing Buddhist. It depends on who you ask. One of my colleagues, the child of alcoholic parents, will show you right there in the biblical text how you're the oldest male child in a dysfunctional family. (laughs) The Lakota Sioux have said you're the buffalo calf of God. One thinker believes there were many people doing what you did, but you were the one who got the press. Who do people say that you are? Many millions of Christians believe you to be the only son of God the Father, begotten, not made. Religious scholars are never finished discussing you. More, that, more has been written about you in the last 20 years than in the previous almost 2,000. Liberal scholars make cases for all kinds of Jesuses. They say you're the founder of a Jewish renewal movement, a spokesperson for God as the feminine Sophia Wisdom, Uh, They say you're a cynic peasant with an alternative social vision. The scholars tell us that when it comes to facts, we don't know much. We have the four Gospels in the Christian Bible, a couple dozen others that didn't make it into the Bible. We have the writings from the Apostle Paul who knew people who knew you. And we have a couple references to you in in ancient non-Christian writings and that's it. When we put these together, the picture looks like this. You were a peasant, a wandering teacher in the manner of your day. You and your followers wandered an area of about 200 miles. You taught near the Sea of Galilee and briefly in Jerusalem. You made enough trouble to get yourself executed by the Romans. And you've been stirring things up ever since. That's about all we know. Lately, well, for the past 15 to 20 years, a group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar have been working on you, Jesus. They got together to search for your authentic voice. They saw that the overlay of church doctrine in the Gospels obscures your real voice, whatever that is. They said that by the time the Gospels were written down, people's faith had overpowered their memory. So for years, they studied each of the 500 or so sayings attributed to you and decided to decide which ones you really said. They took into consideration anthropology, archeology, span and the cultural and politics and literature of the times. And finally, each scholar voted on each saying, voted by dropping colored pebbles into boxes. There were four categories, four colors. A red pebble meant that's definitely Jesus. A pink pebble meant sure sounds like Jesus with some reservations. A gray pebble meant, well, maybe, but not likely, but this could inform us somehow. And a black meant, no way did Jesus say this. There's been some mistake. The group developed guidelines called rules of evidence. They said short, pithy sayings are more likely to be yours because they're easier to remember and pass on. They said sayings that cut against the grain of the religious establishment, love your enemies, the kingdom of God is here and now, would be yours. They said, they they believed anything humorous is probably yours. Not a lot of that. They said, colloquial language will be closer to your true voice. And they did a new translation of the Gospels, uh, trying to be true to the rough slang in the original Greek, especially in Mark. They said, when you curse the hypocrites, you wouldn't say woe to you and expect the hypocrites to feel cursed. They might say they did, but then they're hypocrites. (laughs) The Jesus seminar, folks, let you curse a real curse. Damn you. And that line you often say after you've made an important point, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The scholars suggest that your words in Greek have a little more bite to them, a little more, uh, the spirit of the line is a little closer to, a wink is as good as a nod to a blind horse. The translation they finally landed on was, anyone here with two good ears had better listen. Finally, they said, rule out words that sound like self-marketing. Jesus wouldn't have made pronouncements about himself because that wasn't the style of sages in that time and place. They were men of few words, Gary Cooper types. They didn't initiate debates or offer to cure people. They didn't even speak of themselves in first person, let alone claim to be the bread of life, the anointed, or the Messiah. Those words came later and were the voice of the gathered believers. After... A few years and and thousands of pebbles, here's how the voting came out. Only 20% of your words fell into the pink and red authentic range. 80% of your words were well maybe or there's been some mistake. Even this question, who do people say that I am? On this one, the whole table voted black. Same with your next question, who do you say that I am? at this point in our conversation, Jesus might say to me, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Wow, well, hmm, who do I say that you are? Who are you to me? First, I have to say you are familiar. For me, you've been around since back in my Methodist childhood. Uh, Aunt Audrey on the Christmas of my sixth year gave me a framed picture of you and when the wrapping paper came off she said do you know who that is in the picture you were the 12 year old youth in the temple just poised to put a question to the elders your face with the longish hair could have been either gender I took a guess it's Mary I said which amused the adults my aunt corrected me and dad took a snapshot of that moment The picture of you went up on my bedroom wall and stayed there through high school. I talked to you, especially at crunch times, and you listened. Over the years you changed in my theater, years I saw you as the jester in the cosmic drama, the one who aimed wise wit at the folly of the powerful. In the early days of my feminism, you were the great mother with the wide welcoming lap. In the challenges of my seminary years, you had the face of the savior of Svenogorod, that 15th century Russian icon, which is badly damaged, but not so damaged that we can't see your unbearably compassionate eyes. No matter how you've changed, I've always seen you as the most human human. Your work days consisted mostly of interruptions. Your family didn't understand you Your disciples expected you to do miracles, and you were always deflecting their projections. You'd say, the crowds are hungry, you give them something to eat. You'd say, I'm not good, God is good. You'd say, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? I didn't make you whole, your faith has made you whole. As if to say, when you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. And let's get on with our work, bringing a message of love and hope. I've seen you as someone who never apologized for being human or asked anyone else to. I've always figured it was our mixed-up, messy humanness that attracted you. I say if people followed you around, it was because they liked being around someone who said, come as you are. All you asked was that we would be potential lovers of the world. Who do I say that you are, though? In some ways, you're so familiar... You're also in the farthest away reaches of my imagination. The strangest stranger. I am troubled by some of those edgy sayings of yours. The last shall be first leave the dead to bury the dead. I don't like the end you came to. I don't like what your life tells me about the dirty ways of the world. I don't know how you and your colleagues lived that rough and tumble pretty much homeless existence. The Jesus Seminar had a rule of evidence that went, beware of a Jesus that's congenial to you. That is, beware of taming Jesus, you'll miss his point. One who studied your untamed parables, John Dominique Crossan says, the geographers tell us we do not live on firm earth, but on giant moving plates whose grinding passage and tortured depths give us earthquake and volcano. Jesus tells us we do not live in firm time, but on giant shifting epochs whose transitions and changes are the advent of God. You're a strange stranger because you keep telling us things aren't what they seem at first glance. There's something else going on here, you say. What looks like one world, the material world, is really two worlds, matter and spirit, interwoven. When you say in the Gospel of Thomas, God's imperial realm is spread out on the earth, but we don't see it. I think of the magic eye images where you gaze at a geometric pattern until your seeing shifts and a three-dimensional scene emerges, a landscape, a forest, grazing deer. There's a moment of awakening and you can see the richer reality that was there all along. I see you as one for whom the two worlds, matter and spirit, are held together in relationship even when it hurts. For me, that's what we're getting at when we talk about transformation. And that's one way I understand that part about your crucifixion and resurrection, how you died and didn't die. For me, that story of your painful death and impossible return is a kind of hieroglyphic that says, This is what transformation asks of us. And this is how it can go when we say yes to growth, to truth as we know it, and we walk right on in. Clarissa Pinkola-Estes, writer, storyteller, wise woman, once said that readers write to her and ask for the secret of the creative life. And here's her reply. I'd be most happy to tell you the secret as I know it, even though I am at age 50 still young to it. Here's the secret. A life of meaning and depth is fed and maintained by sitting in the fire without anesthesia. Hold it, you say. That's not the kind of secret I wanted. Isn't there some different secret besides this one? She says, perhaps there are others, but I do not know them. After following many possibilities about what lies at the center over all these years, this is the one secret I return to again and again. This is our challenge to hold two worlds of matter and spirit together as mates, even though we might be torn, hurt, lost, and yearning to go back to an earlier time. Even though we might be ambivalent or confused, when these two are held together, there was always an explosion, and this we call transformation. Transformation is filled with two kinds of fire, a fire that burns down anything in its path that is combustible, and a fire that builds up from the ashes all manner of abilities and visions, these being more sturdy, more refined than ever before. The persons who have stayed long enough in the fire, these you will be able to tell on sight. It isn't only in their art or in their words, more it is in their very presence. They look like the wild el duende has danced them around. There's something about them that's hard to describe, but I know it when I see it, and so will you. Look for evidence of a great storm having risen, blown hard, and finally passed over. End of quote. So, Jesus, when I see you, I see one who has sat in the fire and one who has passed through the storm. Who do I say you are? I think you're a man who was grasped by a vision of abundance that made you brave, and other people could catch a glimpse of it just by being around you. I say you're a person who doesn't much care what color we assign your words you're one who keeps reminding us across the centuries that talking doesn't equal loving, and thinking about it isn't the same as showing up. John Dominique Croissant, the Jesus scholar I quoted earlier, wrote a huge, really thick scholarly book about your meaning and message. When he finished writing it, he imagined himself talking to you like this. Croissant, imagine you visited him, and you said, I've read your book, Dominique, and it's quite good. So now, that, now are you ready to live by my vision and join me? I don't think I have the courage, Jesus, but I did describe it quite well, didn't I? And the method was especially good, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Dominique, for not falsifying the message. That at least is something. Is it enough, Jesus? No, Dominique, it is not. The brief interchange ends there. If I then said to my Jesus, the one resting in the lazy boy, what do you think of that? He might say to me, anyone here with two good ears had better listen. Conversations with Jesus, Judas, John Dominique's, mine. It's dangerous talking for Jesus, says Naomi, our poet. You get carried away almost immediately. I stood in the spot where he was born. I closed my eyes where he died and didn't die. And that makes me feel like being silent, you know, a secret pouch of listening. Episcopal priest Cynthia Bergeau, looking back 2,000 years, talks about the Jesus event. She talks, she calls it a recognition event, where somehow through who the man was, some people experienced a shock of recognition. That is, in being with Jesus and oppressed people, recognized something in themselves, the human form divine? What if Jesus' presence, along with his words and acts, gave people knowledge of what's possible for all of us? What if Jesus conveyed an idea of God that required people to believe something miraculous, not about God, but about themselves, What if the people had an experience of God pouring God into God and it made their hair stand up? That would have been radical in Jesus' time. It's radical in ours. And then, how do you talk about that experience? It's no wonder people described it inadequately, partially, wrongly. Describe the scent of lavender or pine, the sound of the bow on the strings. Describe beauty. Describe a life. Describe God. We can't describe it, but we can know it. And best of all, we can be it. There's a message of love and hope and light for this season.
1: So be it, amen.